0: Well, good morning, have you, uh, you ever noticed that when someone says good morning that the instinctive response is just a reaction, that there's really no real thought about what's been said or rather it's just kind of a, a courtesy or a pleasantry of having heard a familiar greeting, is it not? Like even if we're not feeling like it's a good morning, we're like good morning, you know? And you might have just a moment where you're like, morning kind of sucks, but uh," you know? But there's just this automatic response. For those that have children, have you ever told your children something, explained it to them, received a yes, I understand reply, only to have them tell you after doing the task incompletely or incorrectly that you never told me that? (laughs) Ever been there as a parent? Your husband. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Point made. Have you ever been talking with a coworker or a uh, a boss or a teacher or a student and think to yourself, "I just agreed with something," but what did they just say? Right. We've all been there. And the problem has to do with our hearing, because genuinely hearing and understanding what's been said is important, but it's even of greater importance on matters with lasting implications. And today, we're going to return to our series in the Gospel of Luke, which we left off the Sunday before Advent, as Kelly shared with us, the latter part of. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to pick up right there, and what we're going to see this morning is that how we hear the Word of God will not only affect our lives in the here and now, but it'll affect our eternity. So let's go ahead and stand this morning as we read God's Word. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 8. We're going to be going verses 1 through 21, and this is what it says. It said, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed. Some fell along the path, and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew And yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not... Be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has more will be given, and for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You may be seated. This morning is an exhortation to each of us. And that exhortation is to hear the word of God and respond with humble, genuine hearts. Hear the word of God and respond with... With humble, genuine hearts. Hear and respond genuinely. That's the call for us this morning. That's the call that Christ is making to us. Hear and respond genuinely. Now, verse one through three begins kind of in an interesting way. It's unique in the first part of Luke here, and it's unique to the story of and the message of Christ. We're told here that soon after, this is soon after he has forgiven this woman of the city that we saw at the end of chapter 7, who came and came before the Lord, prostrated herself before Jesus, the Pharisee stands outside and looks at this woman and he says, certainly if Jesus knew who she was, he would never allow her to be in his presence. And Jesus tells him a story. And it concludes with Jesus telling the woman that her sins have been forgiven. Her faith has saved her and to go in peace. So here Jesus is. He's in the lower region of Galilee. He's now moving through the region of Galilee, through the different cities and towns. And he's proclaiming the hope that is found only in him. He's proclaiming the truth that he is the Messiah And we're told that soon after, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news the kingdom of God. And the twelve, that is the disciples, were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. The first, which was Mary, called Magdalene. She had been delivered of seven spirits. Now, very little is known about her deliverance. Some have thought that she's a prostitute. It's actually kind of more historical tradition in the last few hundred years. But the truth is, we don't know if Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. It's assumed, and some have made the assumption, that she is the woman who was delivered in chapter 7. But the truth is, nothing in the Bible says that she was a prostitute. We don't know that. We know that she's been delivered of seven demons. That's what we know. We also know here that Joanna, the wife of Chuza, who is Harold's household manager or financial manager, is also a part of these women. And then Susanna, who we don't know much about at all, is mentioned. And then many others, it says. And notice what it says. Who provided for them out of their means. These women were serving alongside the disciples. They were serving out of their own resources, their own abilities, and their own finances to support and fund the ministry of Christ. And what we have a picture here is, is that transformed lives, transformed people, serve alongside Christ. They serve in his ministry with their own resource. That's how it's provided for. And so we're seeing that part of that gratefulness, that gratitude, that thanksgiving before the Lord is the offering of our own resources to the ministry and work of the Lord. And it's not just male, it's male and female. It's not just the rich, but it's also the poor. It's not just those who have clean-cut lives, those who have positions of prominence like in the house of Herod, but it's also those who have been delivered from seven demons and a past that when we come to Jesus, he has called each one of us to serve him, but to serve him from our resource, from both the abilities that God has given us and from the finances that God has given us. It's the total part of that. And so these women are pointed out as serving right alongside these men. And we'll see here in this text that these women are an example of the very people that Jesus has redeemed. Yes, he's redeemed the disciples. But he's redeemed Mary Magdalene. He's redeemed Joanna. He's redeemed Susanna. And he's redeemed many others. And in the same way, when Christ has redeemed us and healed us of our infirmities, our sin, our diseases, our demons... Our response is one of service to him. Our response is one of generosity towards him and his work. And so we see that here at the beginning part of this passage. And what you'll notice then is it says, And when a great crowd was gathered, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed. Some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock and as it grew up it withered away because it had no moisture and some fell on the thorns or among the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it and some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His call is that there would be those who hear what he is saying. And his call here is to all, but specifically to those who have spiritual hearing. Those whose hearing is informed by the Spirit of God. For all those who have repented and believed on Jesus, this is a call to you. He's saying, listen. For all those who have yet to repent and hear on G- and put their faith in Jesus, he's saying, this too is a call for you. You too are to hear this word. There's an importance to this. Now notice, it says that as he was saying these things, he was calling this out. Maybe this passage would be better read. A sower went out to sow his seed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some fell along the path that was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and with it choked it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you think he wants us to take note of what he's saying? He's saying, this is important. Take hold of it. And so in verse 9 through 10, his disciples ask him what this parable meant. And notice Jesus' response here. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Wow. To you it has been known, given, that you might know the secrets of the kingdom of God. To you, you followers, you followers of Jesus, I am making known to you the secrets of the kingdom of God. A parable is not to be confused with an illustration. I remember growing up in Sunday school, and it was a well-intended explanation, but I remember having a parable explained to me. It's just an easier way to try to understand what's happening. As a kid, I was really confused because the parables just didn't make sense to me. And they didn't seem all that easy. To me, it was like, just say what you mean. And Jesus does say what he means. The parable is not an illustration. It's it's not an allegory. It's a parable. It's It's a device that God uses to not bring further condemnation on those rejecting what is being said, but also revealing the heart of the hearer. If the hearer can understand it, it actually affirms that God is working within them. It's actually to bring affirmation to the bleeder, to the believer and, and to prevent condemnation upon those who are I should say. because there is condemnation on those who don't hear and respond to the message. right? Judgment will come for all those who don't believe, Judgment is coming, and that judgment is is an eternity apart from God. It's an eternity in destruction and despair when the offer of being in God's presence for an eternity is being given. You see, the parable is actually revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God those things which can only be understood by the spiritually discerning, by those who have the Holy Spirit or by through the Holy Spirit's work. We know that the Spirit of God works to bring that understanding and it is only by His grace the Spirit works in our life that we can see it in the first place, that we can see our need for salvation in the first place. You see, It's the ministry of Isaiah that we see in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. That is who Jesus is quoting here. It says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What he's actually exposing is the genuine desire of the heart here. For those that don't want Christ, they are hardening their heart to him. And the parable is doing that. It's continuing to bring hardening of their own heart. But to the one in Christ, the one who's put their faith in Jesus, it's actually unlocking the secret to the kingdom of God. It is the truth that as we put our faith in Jesus, the Lord continues to reveal more and more and more of himself. Now, I want to be careful here, because there are religions that are hierarchical. Mormonism is one of those, where the the lower stages of Mormonism, for example, you walk into and experience a part of the faith, but not the totality of that faith or understanding. We see that actually in Jehovah's Witness, and we see that in many cults. What this is not talking is about is a hierarchical religion. What it is saying is that when we walk in faith with Christ, he reveals more of himself to us. That's not hierarchical. That is, as we pursue him, he reveals more. And so that's what he's doing here with the disciples. He's actually opening up the secrets of the kingdom of God or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Think about this for a minute. One of the hardest things to understand is that how you can have God, one essence, and three persons. But it is amazing as you draw near to Christ, how all of a sudden that makes sense. How all of a sudden you begin to get your arms around that in a tangible way, and yet it doesn't really follow worldly logic, does it? None of us can say we're a single essence with three persons. But God is. God is. And so there's three admonitions to understand in hearing God's word that he lays out in this passage. Three admonitions to understand in hearing God's word. Or three warnings, three encouragements. But they're admonitions. The first... We find in Luke verses 8, 11 through 15, the condition of your heart will determine how you receive God's word for salvation. The condition of your heart will determine how you receive God's word for salvation. The seed here is the word of God. He tells us that. He says, now this parable, or the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. This is not actually a parable about the sower. This is actually a parable about the soil, the ground, the heart. And so the sower is initially Jesus, but then it's all who proclaim the word of God. That's who the sower is, all who proclaim the word of God. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 8, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The sower is that person that is proclaiming the word of God. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, the preacher of the gospel is like the sower. He does not make his seed, It is given him by his divine master. No man could create the smallest grain that ever grew upon the earth, much less the celestial seed of eternal life. The sower is the one proclaiming the word of God. That's who he is. Now notice the four types of soil here. The first three are soils that don't have saving faith. The first three are soils which don't lead to saving faith. Notice the first soil here. It says, it fell upon the path. It says, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Remember that there's no asphalt roads. There's no cement roads. What he's talking about is a pathway, a road that has been packed down and the seed falls on top of this ground, the birds of the air come and pluck it off. In this particular case, it is the devil that snatches the seed away. And this seed is taken away, and this is an unresponsive heart. The seed never penetrates the ground. It's simply snatched away by Satan. It's done. The hard heart is hard. It's at the essence of Ezekiel 36, When he says, give me a new heart, a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26. A prayer that we should be praying for many of those that God puts on our heart who need Jesus. A simple prayer is to take that Ezekiel 36, 26 and to simply pray that simple prayer of Scripture which simply says this. It says and I will give you a new heart. Lord, give this person a new heart and a new spirit that you will put within them. And remove the heart of stone from your from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Do you see the heart that he's talking about here? It's a heart that's hardened. It's not malleable, it's not moldable. It's just unresponsive to the gospel. I have to be honest with you. One of the things that we often use, we overuse this word, hard soil. We use it as an excuse. This should actually let us know the area that we're working in. But I hear this all the time. Sonoma County is hard soil. Is it? It might be. It might be. But do we know that? See, Is the gospel going forward and just not responded to? I don't think so, actually. There's hardness in the ground. But we're going to see other parts of the soil that we see this morning that also represent the county that we live in. And it's too easy sometimes to say that it's just hardened soil. When in fact, seed has fallen in shallow ground or in crowded ground. The second soil that we see here is the rock. This ground has an underlaying of rock. I don't know about you guys, but if you ever planted on rock beds, it stinks. Our uh, Our old house used to, it was prior to the house being built there, it was a dairy farm. So I'd gone out one year, I went in and we had to put in a backyard, we got to the house and And the owner said, yeah, if you wanna put the backyard in, I'll pay for the sod. So I thought, let's do this. Went out, never put in a lawn before. I figured I'd learn on somebody else's dime Um, because he wanted me to, not because I wanted to. But that was fine and he was very gracious. He said, yes, go for it. Got this lawn in and we went and got there and it's got this lawn going and about nine months into this lawn settling down, there was this area about an eight-by-eight area of lawn that had turned brown. I'm like, did somebody poison this? So I went out, and I thought, maybe it didn't settle in. Maybe it just didn't take root. But I realized it was actually in there fairly firm, seemingly. And I tried it, and I spent a couple days working on it, put fertilizer on it, talked to some guys, talked to Corey. "What, What do you think I can do for this? Nothing's working. Went out there, things dying even worse. Put stuff on it, now it's brown, it's like crispy, you know, (laughs) crispy grass. And so I went out there, and I'm getting frustrated. I'm not kidding you, and I'm frustrated. And I'm looking at this, and I've done all this work on this lawn, and I got this massive brown spot, and it's just in this spot. What's happening here? The acorns, what is it? And so I had a pickaxe in my hand, because I was going to cut up some other areas, and I I was angry, and so I actually, in my anger, I picked up this pickaxe, and I just threw it on the ground, like threw it into the ground like this. And when I did, the handle snapped back up and hit me, and I was mad now. I was mad before, but now I'm really bad, you know? And I'm like, what was that? And I'm walking around doing circles around the lawn because I'm angry in the backyard, and I go, and I come back to that axe, and I grab it, and I just rip it, and I look, and underneath that, grass is asphalt now the craziest part is i had gone through with an auger and with a trench digger and i had gone three feet deep in the cold the ice had taken this old asphalt rolled and rose it to the top of the soil and it came right underneath the grass And so I got a couple other guys, and we cut this area out, and we slid this massive piece of asphalt right out. But the roots of the grass could not take root because it had fallen on rocky ground. It couldn't stand. Oh, it looked good for nine months. But after that nine months, when the cold came, that asphalt rose up, and there was no root structure to sustain it. That's an unanchored heart. People respond impulsively to the gospel. They respond because of what the gospel can bring to them. They think in this life. They think that God is promising them the good life without suffering. And it says that they believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. I was reading a friend of mine in high school on Facebook And I've noticed over the last couple months, he's become increasingly agitated with God. And he's posting these things from an atheist website. And so another person actually responded to him and said, I have to understand what happened to you. And he said, ah, I came to Christ when I was in high school. I was even baptized. He goes, but what has God done for me? And he starts listing off all the things, all the disappointments that he thought God was going to do in his life, and it didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. And he fell away. He just stopped believing. Not only did he fall away and stop believing, but he's actually become more of an enemy of God. See, this is a shallow, unanchored heart. When trials or testing comes, there's nothing to hold on to. It's an impulsive, self-centered faith that sees the gospel as only bringing the good life without suffering. That's why when we preach the gospel apart from repentance, it's not the gospel. God said to repent and believe. He didn't promise you prosperity in this life. He didn't promise you wealth in this life. He didn't promise you comfort in this life. He promised that he would be the prosperous one in your life. He promised you that he would be the comforter in your life, that he would meet the needs that you have, that he would be all of that to you, not your circumstances. Did you ever think of that? That your prosperity... Your comfort, your joy is found in a person, not in your circumstances. That's what he's offering to us. And we have people throughout the church who genuinely think that, well, they've come to Christ. And then we know others, right, that have think they they know Christ but they've fallen away in that time of testing. Now this is not a wrestling and working out your faith in fear and trembling. We do work out our faith with fear and trembling. There are times that we are going to doubt. The question is, does it cause us to reject our faith? Do you see the distinction there? Does it cause us to fall away and turn from who God is? I think sometimes when we talk about the parable here of the soils, we forget that God allows us to wrestle with these things. That's his goodness. What this is talking about is the person who once seemingly believed, but because of trials, because of the things of life, have turned and rejected Jesus. They've fallen away. And he's saying there should be no security for that person in Christ. He's saying that this is not a genuine heart, not a genuine faith. Hebrews 3, 7-12 exhorts us, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Wow. That was to a group of people who were professing Christ. He's saying, amongst you who profess Christ, there are those of you who have fallen away, are going to fall away, because it is not rooted in place. Your view of who Jesus is is a heart that's still self-centered, It's a shallow heart, not one of full surrender. The third type of soil here is the thorns. That's the double-minded heart. The double-minded heart. Verse 14 says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This is a divided and worldly heart. You can't seek the world in God, neither can you find your contentment and security in anything other than in Him. It's trying to serve two masters. That's the double minded heart. The heart that seeks to find its contentment and security in things other than Jesus. The heart that loves the world, that sees the faith in Christ as restrictive rather than as freedom. It's the heart that says, I want the best of what Jesus has to offer and I want the best of what the world has to offer. We see this a lot. We see this a lot. A divided heart. A heart that's committed to the things of the world and seeks the things of the world rather than committed to the things of God and seeking the things of God. We want a little bit of Jesus in a lot of the world. Now, we wouldn't necessarily put it that way. We'd say, I'd want Jesus. But man, I really like this part of the world. What God's saying is that our contentment is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. And what the world has to offer, the good that comes through that, that is just the gravy on top. It's part of his blessing. But we can't serve two masters. We can't serve lust and God continually. We can't serve money and God continually. We can't serve gossip and God continually. We can't serve our apathy and God continually. Now, in each of these places, each of these hearts, each of us should see parts of us where we've had to die to our flesh or in the process of dying to our flesh. What it's talking about here is the heart that is submitted to those things. It's submitted to a double-mindedness. It's okay with being that way. In the same way, it's okay with being and seeing only God providing good things to us in this life. You see, the thorns rise up and they crowd out the good of God. This ground is actually somewhat fertile. Unlike the ground on the rock where there's no moisture, weeds have plenty of moisture, do they not? Thorns have plenty of moisture. I think, to be really honest with you, It's what has infiltrated much of the American church for years. A double-mindedness in our faith. A double-minded heart. It's why Jesus says in Revelation, that he says, oh man, you're neither hot nor cold, and I spit you out. That word spit in Greek is the word vomit. Jesus vomits you out when you're neither hot nor cold, when you're lukewarm. That's what he's saying. You're either all in or you're all out. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to wrestle with sin. But it is to say that we are are in those settled places, that's a heart of unbelief. That's a double-minded heart. He's saying, don't get stuck in the anxiety of the world. Trust as you serve the Lord, as you walk with him, that he will be the one that provides for you. Now here's the soil that he commends. It's the good soil. It's the genuine believing heart the genuine believing heart. Verse 15 says, As for that and the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with repentance. This is the humble heart of saving faith. The humble heart of saving faith. They hear the word. They hold it fast. They desire it. And it says, in an honest and good heart. He's not saying the heart is right away righteous. That's not at all what He's saying. He's saying that it's sincere. It's an honest and sincere heart before the Lord. It's a humble heart. Colossians 1, through 3-8 says, We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since that day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What was the marker? The marker there was bearing fruit. Their lives actually bore fruit of Christ, meaning their lives began to look more and more like Jesus. They bore fruit. Now notice there's a key word here. It was A bearing of fruit that was patient. It didn't mean that victory came overnight. It didn't mean that all of a sudden you stopped lusting. It didn't mean that you all of a sudden stopped gossiping. It didn't mean that all of a sudden put your sin there, stop. And it didn't mean that you automatically grew in love. You didn't go from a person like myself who did not like people to a person who loved people overnight. God did that work patiently. What this means, too, is we are to have the same approach with those who come to Jesus. We, too, are to be patient as God works in their lives. They don't come to Jesus and then we just bombard them and go, Well, you got to get this out and this out and this out and this out and this out. Oh, by the way, I noticed over here that you, too, were like doing this, so this has got to come out and this has got to be coming out. You walk with them in patience and patient perseverance, letting God work on our hearts. We too in ourselves also rest in the grace of God. I don't know about you guys, but there may be sins in your life, because I know there are mine, that rise up that I'm like, God, these things have risen up for 49 years. Do I really know you? The Lord reminds us, Patient perseverance. Submit to me each and every day. That's his grace. That's what he's saying. That's why if we look too far back and we we look at this and we go, man, well, I struggle with liking some of the things in the world and putting that up. Yep, yep, but do you stay there? What he's talking about is the heart of salvation. The genuine, humble Heart, the genuine heart of saving faith. And it's one that is sincere and good. One that is sincere and honest. It's a holding fast to the word of God saying, yes, this is what I want above all else. I'm not there yet, but God, this is what I desire. And I will pursue you in that doing. And his spirit seals us in that work. One pastor sums it up well. We noticed the difference in each category was with the soil itself. The sower cast the same seed. You could not blame the differences in results on the sower or on the seed, but only on the soil. Oh, my dear hearers, you undergo a test today. For adventure, you will be judging the preacher, but a greater than the preacher will be judging you, and that greater is the word itself, for it shall judge you. The word of God is what is speaking to us. We need to hear with ears to hear. The second, then, admonition that he gives us is this little interlude in Luke 8, verses 16 through 18, but it's vital. The second admonition is that God's word is to be used and applied in your life. God's word is to be used and applied in your life. How are we to hear it? We're to hear it so that it might be used and applied. It says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. The word of God is not to be hidden. We're to use it and to apply it in our lives. When we go to the word of God, when we read his word, we're to apply that to our life. We're not to make excuses for where we're at. We're to apply it. We're to use it. It should provide us counsel. The proclamation of a sermon should be speaking into our hearts. The more we use it here, the more he reveals to us about the secrets of the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. The more we draw near to him, the more he draws near to us. That's freeing. That's wonderful to know. But he also has an admi- admonishment here that the less that you go to it, the less that you use it, the more you will lose. You ever notice that? You ever notice that you have an understanding of something spiritually about the Lord? And you go through a dry spell in your life and you haven't dove into the word of God, you see how easy it is to lose what you understood before. I think this is actually one of the hardest parts in ministry. People will come for biblical counsel. We'll talk through the scriptures. We'll actually share what God has. And there's excitement and joy, and because there's excitement and joy, all of a sudden people begin to feel like they don't need it anymore. And so the very thing that they're excited about and the answers they got they pull away from it. And often what I'll actually witness is people will stop making the gathering of believers this time important. But the truth is every time that a sermon is preached on Sunday morning, that is another form of biblical counsel that is given to each one of us. It's a it's basically a group therapy session through the word of God. And the truth is, is that when we pull away from that, the very things that will happen, the very thing that God has given to build us up, to equip us, and to encourage us is the thing that goes away and we lose what we had. We lose the understanding we had. We lose the fervor that we had. And I'll often see that. Or four or five months later, a couple will come back and they'll say, man, we're really struggling again. And I'll often say one of the things I notice that you've been missing the service a ton, a ton. It's one of the reasons that we try to have children's workers only serve once a month, because we want you in the service. We believe it to be important. We believe that the public proclamation of God's word is essential for the body of Christ. It's also why we need to be drawing into the God's word privately and personally. You see, our lives are to manifest his presence. And people should see the transforming power, the light of Christ in our lives. They should look and be able to see Jesus in us. David Guzik points out one must either spread the word itself or spread the influence of God's word by bringing others to a place where they will hear it. It's best to do both. Now one thing that I would change with David Guzik there is simply this. That place to bring Jesus? Well, yes, It's a wonderful thing to bring them into the gathering of the believers, but bring them into your life. Let them see Christ in you. That's where it begins. You being the person who goes into the harvest field, me being the person that goes into the harvest field and begins harvesting. Let Jesus be seen in you. Use and apply the word of God not just in doing, but also in being. And then finally, the third admonition and the final admonition here, we find in Luke eighteen, nineteen through 21. It says, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Christ's family is identified as those who obey God's word. Christ's family is identified as those who obey God's word. The first step of obedience with him is to repent and believe. It's an act of faith. It is only through faith that we are a part of the family of God. It is only through genuine hearts of repentance and genuine humble hearts of response in belief that we are identified with Jesus and his family. Your works will never get you. A faith that wanes, that is rejects God because he allows trials in your life. A, a faith that is double-minded. All those are insincere faiths. They're unsaved faiths. But the saving faith is a genuine heart of humility. The saving faith is one in which we're identified as those who obey God's word. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I love that. You can know all about the word. You can know all about God's word. You can know it in and out, but if you choose not to submit your life to it, don't be deceived. You don't know Jesus. That's not me saying it. That's not Tim Swanson saying it. That's what James is saying here. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves into thinking that you know Jesus. It's a little bit of Jesus. It's a little bit of smattering, is it not? Hebrews 11, verses five through eight says, by faith Enoch was taken up Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God's family are those who obey him. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can simply pray a simple prayer And then live your life for yourself, believing that you know Christ. Repent and believe on Jesus for your salvation with a genuine heart. For those who know Jesus, submit yourselves to him with a genuine heart. Come to him, draw near to him. Apply and use his word knowing that in your obedience there can be confidence of the salvation that he's put before you. But come before him with a humble and genuine heart, and may each of us hear his word and respond with a genuine and humble spirit today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of what it is that you have called us to. Thank you for opening our eyes to your truth. And Lord, may it be that we are both emboldened in our faith as we come to you with genuine hearts, and may it also be that we are more empathetic, that we are more caring and more loving toward those who have yet to come to faith. May it be as we understand these things that we don't grow weary in both living in a culture of different soils, and may it be that we don't grow weary in testifying to your truth in a culture of multiple soils. Embolden us this morning to be faithful witnesses of your light. But God, throughout all of it, work in us patiently your faithful ministry of light in our own lives. May we each bear the fruit that you've called us to bear that is so clearly proclaimed in your word today. And we ask these things in your name, amen.